chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 is our text. We're teaching through the gospel of Luke. And we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 31 this morning. So if you'd open your Bible there, I'll read the text. I believe that as we read the text, God already begins to speak to you and show you things and, and become intimate with you. And then we're going to talk about some things and hopefully fill in some gaps and, and just come to a, a good understanding of the word. Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things and they derided Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades... He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. Now he is comforted. And you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from here, or excuse me, there pass to us. And then he said, I beg you, therefore, father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you're good and gracious to us always, and especially so when we have your word open before us and our hearts prepared through worship and prayer to uh, get into your word and let it get into us. As I said earlier, Lord, we want to understand some things here. To do that, we'll need your Holy Spirit to be active and present in each and every individual heart. Lord, I suppose that there are unbelievers here, folks that have not given their lives to you. They've not received your Son, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior. I pray, Lord, that they would see that, uh, the need, Lord, and the necessity to get their lives right with you while there is time. And so do a work of salvation, Lord, in the lives of unbelievers and of encouragement in the lives of believers. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. One of the online travel services has produced a series of humorous TV commercials. Many of you will be familiar with these as I describe them. 
Sitting in front of a computer, a person planning their vacation gets an idea for a certain location. Then they take a virtual tour to see what it's going to be like. In one of the ads, the husband thinks it would be cool to take his whole family to a a remote hunting lodge. As he clicks around, he sees his kids seeing all the mounted heads of the game animals screaming with horror. He decides that maybe they should go on a more traditional vacation. In another, the couple are in bed in a tropical jungle location. Their bed had mosquito netting. Once the lights go out, they hear intense buzzing. Turning on their flashlight reveals hundreds of gigantic mosquitoes swarming them, and they try and bat them away. It ends with the netting falling in on them. And again, back to reality, they decide another location would be appropriate. The point of the ads is well made. Because you can see ahead of time what your destination will really be like, you can wisely choose where you want to go. Jesus did something like that in our reading. He gave his listeners a virtual tour of Hades. Call it the Gulf Tour, if you want, because he mentioned this great gulf or chasm that separates paradise from punishment. He showed them and he shows us two possible destinations after death so that you can wisely choose where you want to go. Why would anyone choose to go to punishment in Hades? You choose to go to punishment in Hades by choosing to not go to heaven. You can receive Jesus Christ and his forgiveness of your sins and be bound for eternity in heaven. Or you can choose anything else you like and you'll be on your way to spending eternity first in Hades and then in hell. We'll organize our thoughts about heaven, Hades, and hell around these two questions. Number one, do you see yourself as a convicted lawbreaker? And number two, do you see Jesus as your compassionate lawmaker? First of all, in verses 14 through 18, do you see yourself as a convicted lawbreaker? No one in their right mind would choose Hades and hell over heaven. And yet Jesus was warning the Pharisees that they were on their way to that destination. These guys were the religious leaders. They were considered the spiritual giants. How could they miss out on heaven? It's really very simple. They thought that they could get to heaven by keeping God's law. As we will see, they could not get to heaven by keeping God's law because no one can keep it perfectly. And so in verse 14, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard these things and they derided him. Jesus had been talking about the proper use of your money. He said that money is a resource, not a reward. It is an earthly resource to be invested in furthering the gospel so that you can earn eternal rewards. The Pharisees were lovers of money. They saw it as an earthly reward for obeying God's law, for being a good person. The more you have, the more God must be pleased with you. Now, when we read this initially, they were lovers of money, we pass over it because we think, well, I'm not a lover of money. Sure, I'd like to have more money than month. You know, I'd like to be able to pay my bills and to do a few things. And I I like having some money and and all, but I'm not a a money-grubbing lover of money. 
But see, really the idea here isn't so much that as they were a lover of the idea of money in that they believed that if you had money, it was a sign of God's blessing upon your life. And if we're not careful, or if we're honest, sometimes we feel this too. Or we look at other people and, and make comparisons. And we think, well, you know, God is blessing that person because they, they seem to be doing well and all their finances are firing on all cylinders. And all. Here's a person who's struggling. Well, there must be some sin in their life. And we fall immediately back into the thinking of Job's friends who came to visit him. While Job was prospering and doing well, he had very little relationship with the Lord. God sent uh, through Satan all kinds of calamities and catastrophes Job's way. And immediately his friends thought, mm, secret sin, some kind of a problem with Job. What have you been hiding, Job? What, what are you doing when nobody's looking? And you don't get the, to the end of the story before you find out that it's a teaching that God is sufficient for us. It doesn't matter if you're blessed or taken away. You know, Job himself at the beginning, he says, the Lord blesses and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in our more spiritual moments, we believe that, but we always fall back into this human tendency to see people who have more and greater and bigger as being blessed by God. And if we don't have as much or if someone doesn't have as much, they must not be really on God's good list right now. And this is the idea of lovers of money. And so be careful we don't fall into this wrong way of thinking. And so verse 15, he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. From a human perspective, these guys did seem very spiritual. They, for example, tithed faithfully. They even counted out 10% of their spices. And so when they imagine going to the market and buying a can of uh, coriander seed and then you count out the seeds and keep, you know, uh, 90% and you donate 10% to God. That's how meticulous they were in, quote unquote, keeping God's law. They had God's law literally tied onto their wrists and tied to their foreheads in these little prayer boxes called phylacteries. Now, the phylacteries are a great symbol for what Jesus was saying. They kept the law on them. They kept it outwardly, but they did not keep the law in them. They did not keep it inwardly in their hearts. It was all an outward show. They were the great showmen of their time. Hence, they were the abominable showmen. I'm always open to other titles. If you would like, I would actually, I challenge you. I'm challenging you right now as your pastor. Read ahead the passage. You, you already know what we're studying next week. It's in your bulletin. I'd like you to read ahead and, and email me some of your titles. And I won't give anybody's name, but I'll go over some prospective message titles. It isn't as easy as it looks. Anyway, they were great showmen, but they were. They were all about the outward show. This kind of outward show of obedience with no inward change might justify you before men. Men might look at you and think you're spiritual, but God saw it as an abominable hypocrisy. If no one can keep God's law perfectly, what is its purpose? But Jesus goes on and he says in verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. 
And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. The law and the prophets means everything God had said in the Hebrew scriptures up to that point, what you and I call the Old Testament. The law of God, the word of God is perfect. Not even one tittle of it can fail, meaning the smallest mark, the smallest punctuation mark. The Hebrew scriptures were intended to prepare your heart for the coming of the kingdom of God. We would say that the intent of the scriptures was to show you how far short you fell from God's perfect standards so that you would see that you needed a savior. John the Baptist came along announcing that the savior was on earth. He pointed to Jesus as the savior who would save you from your sins. Both John and Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom was at hand and it was open to any who would receive Jesus as their savior. Many common folk were pressing into the kingdom by accepting Jesus Christ, by receiving him. They understood that they were lawbreakers, but that Jesus was on the earth to keep the law for them. He would take their sin and give them his righteousness and they would be justified before God. Earlier I said no one can perfectly keep God's law. The one exception is the unique individual, Jesus Christ, who was God and man. And it was one of the reasons he was sent into the world as the God-man, to perfectly keep and fulfill all of the perfect requirements of God's law. Meaning he was above the law in the sense that it, it had no hold on him. Then he could represent lost humanity before the throne of God and say, Father, I... I have kept the law on behalf of all of my brothers and sisters from all of time. And I am willing to die in their place. They deserve death for being lawbreakers. I do not, but I'll take their place. I will die for the sins of all the people of the world. And you will give them a right standing with you. You will give them my righteousness. You will justify them. It will be just as if they'd never sinned. That's the transaction that takes place. The Pharisees and other religious leaders had short-circuited that by thinking they were keeping God's law and that God was looking down saying, bravo, bravo, more coriander seed. You even gave one extra seed. I'm so pleased with your outward obedience of the law. And it wasn't true. Now, Instead of seeing how far short they fell, instead of saying they were lawbreakers and sinners, the Pharisees kept reinterpreting God's law in order to be able to keep. You say, well, wait a minute. How did they figure they're keeping God's law when they read it and it seems so difficult? Well, they, they reinterpreted it. We do this today. Uh, you know, I hate to pick on, on people who have a real thing about the Sabbath, but it's a good example. There are people who are really into keeping the Sabbath, the Saturday Sabbath, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. And they, some of the groups go as far as to say that you're not a Christian if you don't worship on Saturday and that you're the antichrist if you worship on Sunday. Some, you know, sometimes people say, Gene, why are you always picking on people? I'm not saying any mean things about people. They call me the antichrist. They do. They, you know, they say it's worshiping the mark of the beast. If you worship. Everybody here today, there are many Sabbath groups that think you are worshiping the devil and that you have taken the mark of the beast because you're practicing Sunday worship. 
And, and so I'm, I'm actually tame compared to what's out there. And so let's look at that. So let's say you want to keep the Sabbath. You want to keep God's law. Everybody I know that tries to keep God's law interprets it in a certain way that puts them in the best possible light. And so you go over to their house and they're doing something that really appears like work to you. Uh, excuse me, what you're doing right now, isn't this work? No, not for me. Oh, why not? Well, because it isn't. But what you're doing is work, you sinner. And, and everybody has their own idea of what work is and what work isn't. We used to have a lady on our paper route. You'd go over to her house, she'd be doing housework, but she couldn't pay the paper bill because that was work on, on the Sabbath. It was work for her to write a check. It was considered work. Actually, she was considering us working, and she didn't want to you know, promote work on the Sabbath. I knew she was vacuuming and, you know, and stuff. Housework isn't work, but collect, you're eight years old, and you're trying to collect seven bucks for the paper. You're going to die and go to hell, brother. And so this is how ridiculous trying to keep the law, and that this is what happens when you try to keep the law, you reinvent it, you reinterpret it. And one example is their approach to divorce and remarriage. By the time of Jesus, God's original intention for marriage had been so diluted by the religious leaders that you could divorce your wife for any reason at all. And so they thought they were keeping God's law about marriage and divorce, but they were only keeping their own outward interpretations of it and that's why in the middle of nowhere just you're thinking what does this have to do with anything jesus says whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery jesus was using their weakened watered down reinterpretation of god's law regarding divorce as an example it was well known to the jewish community and to the to Luke's readers, that Jesus had had encounters with the Pharisees and scribes about the issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage and how they had redefined it and weakened it. And so he's using, this isn't a marriage study all of a sudden in the middle of his talk. It is an example they would understand. He's saying, look, you guys think you're keeping the law and that God is blessing you. You're the biggest lawbreakers on the face of the earth because not only are you breaking God's law like everybody, you're reinventing it. You're making up laws so that you can think that you're keeping it. Yours is the worst abominable hypocrisy imaginable. Now, divorce and remarriage is not our subject. But I should say something because so many lives are touched by it and this verse can sting if it's not put into its context. The whole teaching on marriage and divorce and remarriage is something like this. God hates divorce and he intends marriage to be between one man and one woman for life. Jesus allowed for divorce and remarriage in cases of physical adultery. The offended spouse has the right to remain in the marriage or to divorce and remarry another believer. The Apostle Paul further clarified this situation by teaching that a believer was free to remarry if they were abandoned by their unbelieving spouse. And so that's the general overview of what the Bible teaches regarding divorce. And then everybody has their own, well, what about me and this happened? And we would have to talk to you about that. I just don't want anybody to be left this morning with a, a condemnation. Uh, 
about this topic because it really isn't our topic and we're not going deeply into it. But that's what the Bible teaches in general. Now back to our context. Jesus was rebuking these religious men. They were definitely not keeping God's law, not even outwardly. They were convicted lawbreakers, but they did not see themselves that way. These guys were not headed for heaven. They were headed for Hades. Which brings us to the second question, do you see Jesus as your compassionate lawmaker? Hades, by the way, is not hell. They are two different places. Hell is a place that was created especially for the devil and his demons, the fallen angels who followed him in his rebellion against God. It is called the lake of fire in the book of the Revelation. Hades is a different place. It has two regions, a place called paradise and a place for punishment. They are separated by an impassable gulf. Prior to the death and resurrection of Jesus, everyone who died went to Hades. Believers went to paradise in Hades. Unbelievers went to punishment in Hades. Everyone went there to wait. The souls of believers went there to wait for Jesus to come and take them to heaven. When Jesus died, the Bible indicates he descended into Hades to lead all the believers who were in paradise to heaven. After he ascended into heaven, the Bible now tells us that believers who die go directly to heaven without a layover in Hades. And so to, if you die, you're absent from your body, you're present with the Lord. This helps clarify something that's sometimes confusing. You remember Jesus when he was on the cross and the thief turned to him and said, remember me. And Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise, which is this section, this region of Hades that they were headed for. Jesus descended there, revealed himself to all the souls that were in comfort there, the believing souls, and took them to heaven. And now if you die, you're absent from your body and present with the Lord. The souls of unbelievers who die still go to punishment in Hades. They will remain there until the end of human history on earth. Then they will be resurrected from Hades to face the judgment of God. Having rejected Jesus Christ as Savior, they fall short of entering heaven and so they will be cast alive into hell, into the lake of fire, to suffer forever for sins that Jesus was willing and able to take upon himself. The problem that we have with the afterlife is that we're filled with books and movies and literature and notions about what it's like. Most people believe, if they believe anything, they, they believe there's heaven and hell and they think that the devil is in hell now ruling over a dark, flaming kingdom, pitchfork, tail, horns, uh, demons that are down there just tormenting you, you know, keeping you from eating Oreos or, or whatever it would be, you know, just in terrible torment. None of that is true. It's, it's completely false. The devil isn't in hell. He's alive and well and living on planet Earth. He's active in the heavenlies. At the end of all things, he will be cast alive into hell with his demons. That place created just for him. And when people die, they, they don't go to hell. And it's not a party in hell. 
Some people think that hell is like an anti-heaven. I don't really want to go to heaven and play a harp. I'm not musical, but I can party down. I'm going to be in hell with all my party buddies, you know. That's not it either. You're in Hades like this rich man. And so whatever notions we have, we have to get them from the Word of God, which is clear and succinct, and, and everything else is just our own imagination. Now, the rich man in this story represents unbelievers and especially the Pharisees. And you can bet they understood what Jesus was talking about. He said, you guys are lawbreakers. Here's what you look like. You look like this rich man. This is what you want to be. This is who you want to be. I want to show you what happens to him in eternity. The poor man, Lazarus, represents all those who were receiving Jesus and pressing into the kingdom. What a great word, pressing in. They were so excited. Imagine just on a human level being so excited about something that you, you were pressing into the doors. Hey, let me in. Let me in. I want to be there. And this is the idea that the common people, how wonderful for them. Because these religious leaders are telling, well, you can't go to heaven. You have to be like us to go to heaven. You have to tithe your coriander seed and you have to you know, do all of these things. You're a loser. You have no hope. And so imagine... Jesus saying, hey, repent, be saved. I mean, these people were crushing to get in. In verse 19, there was a certain rich man who was clothed with purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. This guy was the extreme that every religious Pharisee was shooting for, living the lifestyle of the rich and famous. He had it all. Purple dye was extremely expensive. It just indicates that he had a closet full of clothes. More than that, he probably never wore the same outfit twice. Fine linen refers to his undergarments. Even his underwear was extreme. This guy had the finest underwear money could buy. I have two or three jokes, but I'm just running them through right now, and I don't think I can tell them. Anyway... He threw a party every day, every day. Now, some of you have put on banquets, uh, and you know, I mean, you know, a real formal kind of a banquet, and, and usually you cater it, and it's a lot of work. You don't do anything, but, you know, it still works. This guy had a catered banquet party every day, all day. I mean, this, this was, the, you know, wow, I mean, fantastic. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate. Desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, Lazarus is, of course, the other extreme case. I'll call them back. It seems he could not really walk because he had to be laid at the rich man's gate every day. He had bed sores and boils and other foul skin eruptions. He stunk. doesn't say that, but you, don't, you can smell it, can't you? The rich man's dogs and other wandering dogs came and licked his sores. Apparently he couldn't move very much, and they would just lay him by the gate, and dogs would come and lick him all day. Now, people sometimes say, Gene, do you have to get so graphic? You gross out my children. I mean, when you explain these things, it just, I mean, it, I don't see how it's biblical. Hey, this is grosser than anything I've ever said, and it's Jesus. Can you imagine this story? Hey, let me tell you about Lazarus and dogs licking his open wounds. I mean, oh, Jesus, what are you talking about? And so this gives me hope. 
He desired but never received, never received even a crumb from the extreme dining table. Now, almost any time you even go to lunch, especially at a banquet with a lot of people, there is tons of leftover food. Never a doggy bag. (laughs) Get it? Doggy bag? This might be where the phrase doggy bag came from. You think it's to take it home to your dog, but Lazarus would have loved a doggy bag. Anyway, so... Now, on earth, the rich man seems to be the one God is blessing, doesn't he? Lazarus must have done something very wrong. He must be a sinner. But that is not how God saw it. It's too bad we still, to this day, have a tendency to think material wealth is a sign of God's favor. The rich man was rich, but not because God was blessing him for keeping the law or for being a good person. I mean, imagine this. This guy has food like crazy. And when it says outside of his gate, we're talking about in these cultures where the main street is going by and, and you're having dinner, not in some inner chamber, not in some dining room, but in your courtyard. And, and you're doing it so everyone can see how rich you are. And you have all these guests coming. It would have been the easiest thing in the world to give Lazarus a few crumbs. But he refused to do it. Lazarus was poor and suffering, but not because God was judging him for breaking the law. And so verse 22, so it was that the beggar died. He was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. The rich man undoubtedly had an extreme funeral. Lazarus had the better procession, however. God dispatched angels to accompany him to paradise. The paradise region of Hades is also called Abraham's bosom. Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. His bosom indicated Lazarus was in a place of intimacy and comfort. His suffering was ended and he was comforted in every way, uh, emotionally and spiritually and in every way imaginable. The rich man was in torment. Verse 24, then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. If you are not a Christian when you die, you will find yourself in torment in Hades. You will be conscious and aware of your history and your future. You will be suffering as you await your final destination and eternal suffering. There is no way out. The gulf is impassable. Receiving good things in your lifetime is therefore no indication God is blessing you for obedience. In this case, it may be an indication that he was missing his understanding of who God was. Tremendous responsibility upon the wealthy to use their wealth and resources in ways that honor the Lord. And so there's no indication God blesses you for your obedience because you're rich. Suffering in your lifetime is no indication God is displeased with you. God always looks on the heart. 
and so should we. Now, a case can be made that the rich man is repentant in Hades. After all, he prays, doesn't he? Well, no, not at all. Talking to Abraham is not prayer. I hope none of you are talking to Abraham and considering it prayer. And by the way, this is a good example of why not to pray to saints or departed loved ones. First of all, praying to saints and departed loved ones is an abomination. But beyond that, on a practical level, they can't do anything to help you. The rich man appeals to Abraham. Now, Abraham is, he's a big gun when it comes to religion. And, and I mean, he's the father of the faithful and, you know, the progenitor of the Hebrew race. I mean, if you, if you could get an audience with Abraham, you would think you're in. I mean, Abraham must have pull with God. And he asks Abraham to help him, and Abraham basically says, I can't do anything to help you. So don't be talking to people that are departed. Even if you could, they can't help you. And you just shouldn't because it's idolatry. Now notice what the rich man requests. He wants Abraham to appoint Lazarus as his servant in Hades. I don't know any other way to look at this. He says, Abraham, send Lazarus over here, and I'm going to lick his finger. Thank you, Abraham. Thank you. I'm so happy that now the rich man, I can have him lick my finger, the water off my finger. I mean, this is insane. He sees Lazarus as being beneath him. Even in Hades, he still acts according to his sin nature. The rich man had relatives. Verse 27, and he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Again, he's treating Lazarus as if he were his servant. Uh, Abraham, I know Lazarus just got here and he's enjoying all the comforts of, of, you know, the afterlife. And he had a tough time, I guess. But can you send him back? I'd like him to go back and minister to my brothers. And why just his brothers? Why not to everyone in town or everyone in Israel or everyone in the whole world? And so he had a very limited scope. And it's interesting to me, too, all of a sudden he knows who Lazarus is, doesn't he? All of a sudden he's Lazarus. But all the time that he was laid by his gate, day in and day out, he never thought once to share anything with him. Now he wants Lazarus to go and do his errands. The sin nature is a powerful thing. It's a terrible thing. And so Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now this last statement is really a complaint. He was complaining that the word of God was not sufficient to save his brothers. And he's implying that it wasn't sufficient to save him either. In other words, he's saying this, Abraham, if you'll send Lazarus back from the dead, my brothers won't come to Hades, and if you had done that for me, I wouldn't be here either. People always accuse God of being unfair. God has not done enough to save me. If God were God, why doesn't he do X, Y, or Z? Why does he allow this? Why did he allow that? What about the pygmy in Africa? All of those things are all the same excuse that we, we have. And they're always saying God has not done enough 
to save me. I'd believe if God would do this, that, or the other thing. God's done everything he can. He sent his only begotten son into the world to die for you. God's done more than we could ever possibly fathom or understand. Uh, it's it's mind-blowing. It's infathomable. And yet we think that he hasn't done enough. And then he's even given us a greater, fuller revelation of himself in the New Testament. Abraham said, hey, Moses and the prophets are enough. Now, we sometimes don't even like to read the Old Testament. And he said that was enough for people to get saved. Imagine if they had the New Testament with its full and complete revelation. The problem is not with God. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. It's interesting to note that Jesus had already raised people from the dead, and it didn't convince the Pharisees. Towards the end of his ministry, he would raise another man named Lazarus from the dead. Not this same Lazarus, but Mary and Martha's brother named Lazarus. Did people believe? Not the religious leaders. They plotted how they could kill Lazarus because they wanted to get rid of the evidence. And they plotted how they could kill Jesus. And they succeeded in having him crucified by the Roman government. Now, while we're touching on this subject, let me say this. Every few years, Christians get caught up in a, what I can only call a miracle movement. They, they start to think that the church is weak and, and not doing its job. You know, you have this outreach or you plan this event and, and it just doesn't happen the way that you think it should and somebody comes along and they say, well, we need miracle signs and wonders. The people aren't coming to church. They're not getting saved because there's no miracle signs and wonders. Well, we don't need signs and wonders and miracles in order for God to save people. If he chooses to do that, I'm all for it, although it, 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 I think it's a lot scarier than we understand. I mean, I'm for anything God wants to do, I'm for it. Nobody's blocking him. I mean... You know, God didn't call this morning and say, I'd like to raise somebody from the dead. And I said, no, Lord, we're not ready for that. We're just, we just want to have our little church service. I mean, that's not how it works. I mean, God is God. He's sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. But people get all whipped up into a frenzy. We have to have miracles, signs, and wonders. And since they're not happening, we need to figure out why they're not happening. It's usually because we don't understand how to bring them. And so we start teaching people how to hold their hands so literally, I mean, you laugh at people always laugh at me and say, no, nobody does that. And then a few months later, oh, really, that was true. I remember one of the movements came through and they, you had to hold your hands a certain way for different diseases, back trouble, shoulder pain. <laughs> I'm serious. If you want to believe that miracles and signs and wonders are necessary, then you're in the same position that the man in Hades was. That's what he believed that the Word of God is not sufficient in and of itself. You're denying what Paul said, that the Word of God is the power of God unto salvation. And so let's just stay focused. Let's just stay on the right foundation and let God do what He's going to do. The truth is, Jesus has risen from the dead. His resurrection is perhaps the most verifiable event in human history. Yet most people deny it. And a growing number of so-called Christians think it doesn't really matter if Jesus rose from the dead. Now, that might shock you. But there are a number of people in various denominations who, if you ask them specifically, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? They would say, 
it doesn't matter. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. It doesn't affect my faith. Well, it would have affected Paul the Apostle's faith because he said if there is no resurrection from the dead, then we are among most, all men the most miserable, misled liars on the face of the earth. But today scholars say, well, it doesn't matter to me. I can still be a Christian whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. Well, you can just be an idiot, but you can't be a Christian uh, is really the way to put that. And so anyway, listen. Instead of looking at someone's fine underwear, which I don't recommend, (laughs) or looking upon their exposed skin with its diseases, we should measure ourselves by God's standards. When you do, you see that you fall short. You and I are lawbreakers. You are born a convicted lawbreaker. You are conceived as a convicted lawbreaker already headed for Hades and then hell. But you also see that you have a compassionate lawmaker, the very one who set the standard at perfection, sent his son to come and keep it for you. As I said earlier, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law for every human being ever conceived. Then on the cross, he took upon himself the punishment that your sin deserves. If you receive him as your savior, you cannot be sent to Hades or hell. You have a mansion waiting in heaven. You have a heavenly address. If you are a Christian, be on guard against this thinking that outward material prosperity is a sign of God's favor upon your life or anyone else's life. It is not. It is very easy to adopt this thinking of the Pharisees. Instead, see all your wealth as a resource to invest in the furthering of the gospel. People are still, in a sense, pressing into the kingdom of God. And God has given you and I the privilege of giving towards this great work. No application should be necessary if you're not a believer. You should be horrified by your own law-breaking, and you should be terrified at your future destination. I can think of no reasonable argument against accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin. Any argument you might have identifies you with the rich man. If you're not careful... You're going to awake one day in eternity and carry your arguments with you into Hades, into punishment, but it will be too late because there's still a gulf on the other side of earth that you cannot pass. How can a loving God send you to Hades and then to hell? He doesn't. He absolutely doesn't. You choose to go there. Hell was created for the devil and his fallen angels. The only reason people go there is because they reject Jesus. And in rejecting him, they choose to go there. God doesn't choose to send anybody there. They choose to go there because they refuse. The only means of salvation, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross on their behalf, because you have an argument that God is unfair. He's not. You're wrong. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these things. They're clear and concise. Nothing could be more reasonable than that a holy God must judge sin. Lord, every day we see the effect of sin in our world, and and all of us have a, a thought, 
why doesn't somebody do something? When is it going to get better? This is awful. It's terrible. People are, are being kidnapped. They're being killed. There are tragedies upon tragedies, disasters and calamities everywhere we look. Why doesn't somebody do something? You have done something, Lord. You sent your son, Jesus, into the world to die for the sins of the world. These things that are happening are the result of sin. Each of us, Lord, a lawbreaker, a sinner in need of salvation, and you have made yourself available to us. And yet, so often folks make excuses. All of their excuses are the same as this rich man's excuse, just worded differently. Forgetting about everyone outside of this building, Lord, that we might be concerned about our five brothers or someone in a foreign country. We're here and we're hearing the gospel. We know the truth. Jesus is speaking directly to our hearts. We're either the rich man or we're Lazarus. There's no in between. There's no middle ground. There's no one in the chasm. No one in the gulf. So I pray, Lord, that by the work of your spirit, you would touch some hearts this morning. You know, this morning, as we close, I I do want to give an opportunity. It may be that there are some people here this morning who are not Christians, you are not a believer, or you're not sure of your eternal destiny, I want to give you an opportunity to accept the Lord, to give your life to Jesus. There might be one or two. I'm, I'm sure there's several. Hopefully today is your day of salvation, your acceptance time. It's your choice. You ask yourself, if I died today, How do I know my destination wouldn't be Hades? I am a lawbreaker. What am I trusting for salvation? Is it something other than Jesus Christ? If it is, then you're in trouble. You're in spiritual trouble. You need to reach out to God. And so we're going to sing a chorus while you meditate upon that. And then I'm going to give you an opportunity to raise your hand and say, Yeah, I I want Jesus Christ. I want to be saved. I don't want to be like the rich man. I want to be like Lazarus in his death, carried by angels to heaven enjoying all of the wonderful joy and resource and reward of heaven. So let's sing. Christians pray that the Lord would reveal himself to your friend or family member who's here today, that today would be their acceptance day. You have forgiven me. You have washed me clean. You can set me free And I am not worthy of your ways Nor to sing your praise I just want to say That I am in love with you
matter of what you believe and who you believe in to save you. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He invited us to be born again, to have a personal relationship with him. And we can have that because he is risen from the dead, and that means he's alive. And he's in this place, and he's been speaking to your heart. He's been ministering to you this whole morning, touched by the music. Maybe you don't understand everything that we said in the message because sometimes the Word of God needs to be spiritually discerned, but you know that there's something wrong with your life. You're not the person that you even want to be. And all the things that you're reaching for, you know, are going to leave you short. The Bible says that God has created you with eternity in your heart. That means there's something about you that will never be satisfied until you give your life to God through Jesus Christ. And so right now, as we close our service, I want to ask you, if you're here... You're not a Christian. You're not sure where you would go if you died, or you're pretty sure you'd go to Hades. You're empty. You're struggling. You're seeking something. I want you to reach out to God. I want you to raise your hand while we're praying and our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Raise your hand indicating that you want to know God as your Savior, that you're willing to give your life to the Lord, that you want to press into the kingdom of God. If that describes anyone here this morning, raise your hand right now so that we can pray for you. God bless you. Anyone else? You're here this morning and you know that you're outside of the kingdom of God. You're hoping even now that you can get out of here before you have to make a decision. Why do that? Why not choose today that you will serve the Lord and know His blessing and His resource? know joy and peace, the strength of walking with Him. Anyone else as we close this morning, raise your hand right now so that we can pray for you and rejoice with you. Now, Father, I thank you for the work of your Spirit. And Lord, I'm always troubled and we always struggle with the hardness of the human heart. The Bible says that your arm is not so short that you can't reach out and save us. But our sin separates us from you keeps us from raising our hand to you, Lord. And I'm sad for that. I'm grieved for it because we're talking about issues of not just life and death, but life and eternal life. And so I want to commit those here this morning, Lord, who have heard the gospel, the good news, that you would continue a work of your spirit in their hearts, that they would find watering of that seed that's been planted and that it would come to uh, fruit, Lord, in their life, that they would give their life to you. I pray, Lord, that there would be time for them. No man knows the hour that they're going to face eternity. You could come for the church at any moment. There's so many variables. But I just pray for them. One more time before we close. If you're here, you don't know the Lord, you want Jesus, raise your hand so that we can pray for you. Anyone? Praise the Lord. Now, Father, we thank you for the work of your Spirit. We appreciate that you are our Heavenly Father. Father's Day, Lord, our thoughts are so much on the earth and earthly, and nothing wrong with that. We're so thankful, Lord, that we can call you our Father. And I pray that we would enjoy all of the benefits that spiritual children have as kids in your kingdom. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Let's stand together and close out our service. Afterwards, some of our guys will be down here to talk with you about anything. 
Uh, if you're, so if you're a believer, don't hang back. You maybe need uh, some prayer or want to give us a praise report. But if you're here today and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, come forward and let us pray for you. Maybe you have some questions that weren't answered. Maybe you have a, a complaint against God. You think your complaint is far more important than any other complaint. That's, that's fine. We'll talk to you about it. But I'm here to tell you that these things are real and true. There is a heaven to gain and a hell to avoid. All of us have those destinations to look forward to. We're here again on Wednesday night over in the fellowship hall. Love to have you out on Wednesday night to study God's word and to fellowship one with another. May God bless and keep you in Jesus' name. Amen. You have forgiven me. You have forgiven me. You've washed me clean. You have washed me clean. You set me free. And I'm not worthy of your ways. And I am not worthy of you. Nor to sing your praise. Nor to sing your praise. I just want to sing that.
Jesus, come. Amen. Have a great week.